I'm your host, Vic Choksi, and this is Victory Lab. The premise behind Victory Lap is simple. It's to have on luminaries from the sports, entertainment, and media worlds to talk about their journey, and most notably, one victory that helped them reach their goal. On today's episode, I speak with one of the best three-point shooters of all time, Craig Hodges. Now, I can't lie, since I grew up a huge Bulls fan, this is definitely a special episode for me. Craig, welcome to the show. First of all, thank God for, you know, giving us another day, man, and hopefully everybody's well during this crazy time, man. How are you and your family doing? Do you have a message for everyone during this, you know, just like you said, just crazy times? Yeah, man. You know, the biggest thing for me is, you know, I see all of the demonstrations and protesting going on, and I'm a baby of the civil rights movement, and I understand, you know, a lot of the reasons why we are where we are today. And, and for me, it's a duality. It's a duality of feeling that it's a, a burden and a blessing to some degree, that's the burden of the loss of life and then the blessing of what's to come in as far as people realizing that human rights and the suffering of African Americans, both here in America and around the world, is something that is visible and people and nations all over the earth are recognizing what black people in America have gone through and, and now this is coming to the forefront with the you know, with your generation of millennials who who have seen the use of social media and the impact it can have and in creating a, a new paradigm, and it's and it's happening right in front of us. No, I think that's well said. It, it's definitely, you know, at the forefront right now. And like you said, because of social media, because it was captured on video, uh, hopefully this brings about a change that, you know, it's something that's been going on for a really long time, something that usually happens and then gets brushed under the rug because something else you know kicks yeah. in but you know again i'm around 40 years old right now i first my first recollection of all of these kind of things is rodney king and that was also captured on video we also had a lot of similar things happen but looking at it now or six years ago you know when the nba players derrick rose and all these guys wore the i can't breathe shirts and same same thing it continues to happen this is six years later or you know x amount of years later do you think that this time will be any different yeah, this time is definitely different, man. Um, the fact that with the virus going on at the same time, that makes it different. People being on lockdown from the virus makes it different. People ready to come outside from the lockdown and then it happens. That's, a, you know, all of these major influxes of things, 50, almost 50 million people unemployed. You know, so it's a, it's, a, it's a confluence of things that are coming together at a time when, you know, when the planet is asking for justice and, and you know, I think, you know, it's it's coming from a, a divine and karmic type of situation, man, where those nations who have, you know, exploited and oppressed, you know, downtrodden people, and it's starting to come to the forefront, man, that money isn't everything, and the top 1% have been able to basically oppress the rest of us, man. And, and I think, you know, people and time, time doesn't wait, man. Everyone has to pay their time all all great empires have fallen and have risen and fallen and you know the dollar is a part of that so when we look at the economy when we look at all of the tied together it's a total different paradigm man and i feel like coming out of this is going to be a total different culture almost and as far as people feel more about human rights people feel more about suffering and empathy and now i think also with the you know the number of females that are in position of leadership across the country is going to make a difference on a local level, man. 
I agree. And I, I hope you're right. That's well said. I think the biggest thing that I've also realized, just me, just been an eye-opener, is just how important your local and state governments are, you know, and just how much impact they actually have on us as opposed to the president. And this was even before George yeah. Floyd when it comes to the coronavirus, for example, right? Just how every area is different and just how direct the impact is and how important it is for us to get yeah. out and vote and, and impact ourselves as much as we can. Governments have failed, man. And, you know, governments have failed on so many different levels. You need law and you need order, but then it becomes who wrote the law and who's controlling the order of that law. So the Constitution is probably the most beautifully written document that we have on the planet Earth. And now it's just a matter of can we really, really bear witness to what the document states and, and live by those tenets? That's something that those who are who have taken oaths of office, who represent us on the national level, they, once they get away from the local level, the local level ceases to exist in so many cases, and that it's left on the people on that local level, the masses who send them to Washington, that have to make a difference in, in one another's lives. That I think oftentimes we look to the government to do things that we could do for ourselves and create environments that are conducive to growth as opposed to, you know, conducive to the bottom line of a corporation or an individual. I really do hope you're right. And I hope we do bring about some change. I've seen some really, really good things from the youth. And, you know, thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about you and your journey a little bit. Let's talk about your NBA years, you know, most notably with the Bulls, you know, just as a player, kind of how were those years with the Bulls, the highs and lows and, and winning the championship? I don't really look at any, any of it as being a low. All of it was, um, it was great, man. It was, um, you know, part of being a professional is being traded in, winning the championship, and then being, you know, being waived. That's all part of. That's all part of it. And I look at my time and and being in Chicago, being in my hometown, being able to be a professional, being able to do community service off the court. It, you know, I couldn't have asked anything better, man. So all of my, all of my dreams that I dreamt of a young boy in Chicago Heights in the project. I was able to realize on so many levels and it continues. So, you know, this is part and parcel of how I was raised to, you know, at, at a time when my sport is done with as far as me compete, when it comes times like this, I was able to be in the community and share my success. And then when the community is, is in, a, in a challenging time, I want to be there for that also. So, you know, my time in Chicago was, it was prepped by me being able to have played six years in the league before I even got here. So coming to Chicago as a, as a veteran and a playoffs, you know, season veteran was a big difference. As I, had I would have come in, had I come in, in as a rookie or a second year player, I might have been overwhelmed by just coming home to play. But, you know, coming home and playing in front of friends and family and, and knowing that we were able to win the first championship here, man, is something that I never forget. And it's something that, you know, I can share with my children and grandchildren. Talking about your NBA career, you know, you led the league in three-point shooting percentage three times. You won the three-point contest three times. You know, still one of my favorite memories to date is uh, that 91 three-point contest where you hit 19 in a row. I remember me and my friends were going crazy. You know, this is before the internet and everything. How was it being in a zone like that? Once again, it's one of those things where you train, you train, you train, you train, you train, you play, you play, you play, you train, you train. And it's really no training for a three-point competition. And you know, when I lost my first cup to Larry Bird and just looking and, and looking at the competition from a critical analytical standpoint, I looked at it and saw what my mistake had been and the reasons why I lost previous was that I had taken it 
as a competition, as a shooting competition, not as a game. And when I started to focus on it as if it were a game, I didn't lose. And it was one of the things that it was a different focus in as far as I, I looked at it as being me going into this competition. And, you know, once again, I always tell people I would never have been, you know, those 19 in a row was partly because, because of Cliff Levinson. The amp and the hype and, and the way he was able to bring hype around me and the hype that he was bringing around me around the other competitors was almost taking them out of their zone where I could just focus. And he was telling me, yeah, man, you're getting ready to hit every shot. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm getting ready to hit every shot. And I almost hit every shot. So it was one of those, you know, great memories, man. And, and being able to do something that you learned as a child and, and, and honed it and honed it and honed it. And you get into, and that night, I truly got out of the way of myself. And I just shot the ball the way that I knew I could shoot it. I didn't think about it. I was just making sure that every shot was the same. I waited until I saw it go in before I moved to the next ball. And it was literally I shot each ball as an individual ball and not the entirety of 25 shots. <laughs> I love it. I love that you gave the little Cliff Levingston shout out. I, I miss that guy. He is the original hype man, the number one hype man. I, I'm, we'll talk about the last dance later. I'm sad that he wasn't in it just to show kind of his, his hype and how he used to get the team ready. But no, that's a great I mean, answer. Man. And, you know, that's, that's the thing that a lot of people don't see is that when you win on that level, it's truly a collective. It's a collective challenge and a collective challenge negotiated and got to a point where, yeah, we can do this. And I'm confident in one player to the next player, to our coaching staff, to the management that, we uh, found the chemistry to do this thing, man, and Cliff was a big part of that chemistry. No, that's great. Let's talk a little post-Bulls years, right? Touch on some of the things from your book, Long Shot. You know, mainly some of the things that happened to you during your activism years. I, I remember yeah. as a kid, you guys went to the White House, you wore a dashiki, you gave President Bush a letter expressing your discontent for the administration's treatment of minorities. How was that received just from the administration, your teammates? You know, I don't know if Bush, um, if the administration ever read it. Uh, when I did the research for my book, the uh, Bush Library in Texas has been totally cool. So, you know, from that side of it, they haven't not giving me pictures, not giving me the, the letter that I actually wrote to him. So from that standpoint, the administration was cool. I think what happened was, you know, during that period of time, we didn't have the only media coverage was the media that was either traveling with the team. And everybody knew that I had one Dashiki throughout the playoffs to, before we won our first championship. So it wasn't a matter of the media around us not used to it. It was national and international media when we arrived in Washington. I was shocked to see a member of the World Championship Bulls name with Dashiki. And prior to the trip, I, I wrote the letter the night before, you know, because I had written letters to all of our Congress people and all that was growing up. So I felt like this was a time that I needed to do it for this trip. And, you know, I spoke with our PI guy, let me know that I had written a letter. And he told me when we got there, he would let him know. And they told him I couldn't hand it to the president directly. So I'd have to give it to the press secretary, which I did. And then when I met the president, told him, you know, I had written the letter concerning issues uh, within the community. And he said, you know, he congratulated me on doing that. Said it had never happened before. And he was totally cool, man. So I tell people, Bush was cool. It was, you know, with the parlor from that, which no one ever tell me what the parlor is to this day, uh, other than what I hear, third, fourth party. And, you know, the results speak for themselves. And as far as being 32 years old, the same age Kevin Durant is, with more accolades, and as far as championships and three-point titles, he has scoring titles, but... Just from the standpoint of being that age and what you're capable of doing the rest of your career, 
you know. So for me, it's just been one of those things that I've, I've recognized it for what it is and, and been able to move on and, and raise my sons in a way where you recognize um, what you're capable of doing and you recognize what you have control over. And those things that you don't have control over, you can't sweat about, man. You got to keep pushing and handle the things in your life that you can master. Things change, right? You you know, you went from being one of the best three-point shooters in the league to no one signing you. When did you kind of realize all of that, that you were being blackballed? When Texwitter calls me and tells me that uh, he called every team on my behalf and not one team called him back. And at that point, he told me I should think about teaching a game of basketball because he understands I learned from him. <laughs> and I was one of the, he told me I was the best student he ever had in as far as studying the triangle, knowing the triangle, playing in it. So he told me it was time for me to start looking to coach the game. And at that point in time, I had somewhat accepted it because you realize that when the game is not going past you, but that management is not going to give you another opportunity. And it was in 1997 when I said I was going to sue the league on that, on that matter. And, you know, I did. That was in 1997 when I sued him. And, and it was crazy because the attorney that I had, uh, I didn't realize at the time that he was trying to represent players within the league, so uh, he didn't really have any true passion to represent me for what I was, the cause that I was on, man. So in, in so many ways, I look back and see the collusion that was in, in, involved. I look at what happened to McLeod, Abdul Rauf. So I know that the league has been one. And then, you know, the golden parachuting of uh, Donald Sterling, you know, you give him $2 billion for being a racist. And you kick myself and make moves out of the league at, at the height of our careers when, and our earning power for our family. So it's, it's a sickening, you know, when you look at the intertwines of uh, systematic injustice and you can see it through a clear lens and, and point to it and be honest about it, man. And I think that's something when we talked about earlier about things not being the same. I think that's what's going on is that people are starting to look at this thing from a critical standpoint not allowing money, power, or influence to have a, a weight on the scale, but actual, you know, events and truth and let that be the layer. Do you think that if all of this happened in today's age with today's media, social media, that things for you and Mahmoud would have been different? Oh, absolutely. It wouldn't happen. And, and even now, when I see on, on last Saturday when the NBA coaches get together to have a uh, racial equality type phone call, things are changing, man. You know, things are changing, and hopefully, you know, we will see it. And how the NBA comes out, even in the short, shortened uh, thing they do, is to see what type of, you know, moves they'll make in, in terms of equality and, and human rights. I agree. It's nice to see just uh, Adam Silver in today's day and age with the NBA kind of being at the forefront of a lot of this stuff. You know, they look different than some of these other leagues, most notably the NFL and MLB. So, you know, I hope you're right. And I hope that that we do see some real change moving forward. They should be in the forefront. You know, you have have smaller numbers. You have numbers that are um, capable of unifying in such a way where – you look at Major League Baseball, you look at football, you you have more numbers that you have to work with over, you know, over a period of time where we have that small number that we can actually sit in one room together and not have to coalition deal to get this thing over. I think, you know, right now we're capable of, you know, when I say we, I'm putting myself in as far as the, the paternal order of national basketball players that have done it, who have done it, and, you know, who still are capable of having a, a part in the solution. 
and that's what I was talking about in 91. Uh, when I came in the league, I talked about it at every place association meeting that the inequity on, in America has to be looked at. And our union being apolitical, we never touched it. And I think that's why a lot of the issues in America still permeate because athletes and entertainers have chosen power, influence, and, and money over the, the ability to have a visible impact in the issues that confront our society and the world. I agree. It's nice to see some of the youth in the NBA kind of step up right now, too. So, nothing about it. And that's what I say, man. The influence of social media on being able to be a historical, you know, a historical place where you can get the information readily. You can ask the question, you get it instantaneous and, and get it from a myriad of uh, sources. So, it's something, man. And I, I love, I love the fact that the information playing field is more level than it was during time that we were going up and, and so much of the information was hidden until you got to college and had a chance to study it and uncover it. But now I think it's um, it's more in the mainstream where in fact the, you know, this type of platform and the platforms that's been interviewing me over the last four weeks because of this last dance thing has not been CNN, ABC, you know, it's been more from, you know, what they call alternate media sources or what have you. I just call it the righteousness. And the truth, you know, and that now the people have the ability to tell their truth and what they see coming forward and without it being filtered by an editorial board or uh, a mega rich person that controls six or seven companies in media and they're all the ones that people have to get their information from. The world is changing, man. It's changing in front of everybody's eyes. You know, you brought up The Last Dance. Let's talk about it a little bit. You were one of the most glaring omissions from the docuseries. You know, why do you think that was? Uh, you know, me being, you know, I, I'm, I'm a child, man. I have a childlike mentality. So the first thing that comes to mind is that the creator didn't want me to be a part of it. And, and I love it. I love the fact that I wasn't because you eliminated me from it. Gives me such clarity on why and why I was blacklisted. It take, it, it, for me, it's clarity and and bringing a lot of, you know, bringing crystallization to everything that happened from 1992 when I was released until I was admitted from this thing. And then I look at All-Star Weekend when I'm homegrown. I didn't get credentials for All-Star Weekend. I didn't get a ticket for All-Star Weekend. I didn't get invited to a three-point competition. And I love it. I love that admission because if you admit me from a wicked system, then I love it because that means I'm on the side where I'm supposed to be. I'm on the side that's fighting against that wickedness that you're promoting. But as you promote me out of the game, you change the three-point competition so you don't have to mention my name. That's fine, but I know what I did. You don't want to mention me at All-Star Weekend, but when you walk into when you walk into the United Center and you look up at the banners, you don't see my name up there with my brothers. So I'm not concerned about their recognition. What I'm concerned is about the freedom, justice, and equality for poor people, for homeless people, for women who want to have the rights over their own bodies. Those are the issues that are more important than dunking or a three-point shot or any of that, man. So I love it. I love the fact that he didn't uh, involve me. I re I'm reaching out for him right now because I'm doing a documentary, and I want to holler at him. And I would love for him to holler at the people on my documentary. If he likes to, if not, that's fine. But... For me, I saw for what it was. Bill Cartwright put it best. He said, it was one brother's opinion about the way he saw what our team was about, but it ain't really what it was. He said, you know, that's not everybody's opinion. 
and it's great entertainment. Did the director or MJ or anybody reach out to you? No, no, no. And it was funny to me. <laughs> okay, you show BJ Armstrong shooting at the, at the White House. My clip is right after that. When you leave yourself on editorial format, you know, it's obvious. It's obvious why you're leaving me out. Why are you leaving me out? You're leaving me out because the issues that we're facing today, I talked about in 1991, and Magic, MJ, the top 50 players, none of them wanted to address the issues of Rodney King at that time. Why? It wasn't time. Now you got a billion dollars, and now you have a certain, I guess, you know, it's not on me to say when you come into your consciousness, but I'm glad that you came into it when you have, brother. But once again, I get it for what it is, brother, that they didn't, they didn't want to bring me on and have me upset the apple cart. <laughs> it's, it's still wild to me. You know, you talked about some of your brothers. Who, who are you still close with from the Bulls years? I talked to Horace almost every day since I was just been going down, man. And our relationship has grown over this last couple of weeks, man. I talked to Bill. I talked to Ron Hopper. I talked to, I haven't talked to Scott yet, but I talked to Cliff. We, we won, man. We won. You know, we won championships together, and that's one brother's opinion. But what he's done to a degree is make our relationships as, as champions even stronger. Because we know, we know the battles that we went through. We know the growth that we all made as a team, man, on the individual level. When I look at throwing Scotty under the bus and when I think about the type of teammate that Scotty Pippen was, that he was the greatest teammate person to have because he would take, you know, he'd take a jersey off of you. You know what I'm saying, man? So I, I look at that. And then the real crazy part about the whole Scotty thing is that why would you have to show him not get up for that last shot that Tony Kukoc hit when you weren't even on the team. So why bring it up? You brought it up just to make Scotty look like a bad character and that he's a selfish being, which he ain't, man. And, and that's, 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 that's not cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, there was a lot of little, little jabs at Scotty, I feel like. And there, the big, big thing to me was, like you said, why – bring that up, but then not bring up like the Hugh Hollins thing or bring up the thing against the jazz where, you know, Scotty, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays, right? Just how important that was. Scotty can barely walk. Scotty can barely walk in the Utah kid. They show a clip in the documentary where Scotty can barely walk. He gets up, he sets a pick for you, gets knocked down, can barely get up and re-picks for you. <laughs> and I'm like, if you just watch that, that is the most unselfish giving of yourself. You may not be able to walk tomorrow. You may not be able to play with your children. And you've given up your body for him. And he goes and does what he does. And everybody forgets about how you got him off over there, which was a sacrifice, which is not selfish. And he goes and scores. And he goes on to be the icon. And we are the Jordanaires. And that's the part that's so funny to me. Man. Hey, come on. And that's America, though. America has to have heroes and villains. It's the game to keep the people indoctrinated to uh, a mental bondage that is not true to God, man, true to the potential of all of us. And it's and changing. I agree with you, and I understand why Scotty's upset about it. And, uh, you know, let, let's see. He hasn't really, really addressed it personally, so we'll see if anything. And so, you know, one of, the things, one of the things, too, is that in that, it's a, it's a different avenue for outreach. So MJ can come, and, and everybody's going to interview MJ, 
But how many people are, are tugging to Scotty to get to him right now? You know, so a lot of it, I want to see, you know, his response when he comes to respond. And we, we may, I hope we can do it as a collective. That's what I'm pushing for, for all the brothers to be able to sit down and, and get us unified again because we wanted unity and, and we got to get that back. That would be great. That would be, you know, something that a lot of people would want to hear from you guys together as a group. So let's shift gears a little bit. You had a long, successful journey doing a lot of different things. You know, you were a player, coach, activist, author. You know, was there one thing out of all of those that you enjoyed doing more than anything else? Oh, man. You know, research is like, like right now, man, just, just researching and, and seeing my sons work with me in this whole process and, and see how – how they're developing and how, how seeing how they're becoming conscious in their own right on different issues and just hearing the passion in their voices that I hadn't heard before. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that, as you, you know, and my granny told me that they rest of soul that you never know how much you do with your children until they're grown. And, you know, all of those, all of those uh, lessons that I learned in my life, man, you know, it's like everything else that like right now we're in this moment. And we do our best to stay in the moment, man, and don't look too far behind you. Don't look, you know, keep the vision going in front of you, but, you know, be mindful of the moment because we only bless the moment and we're not guaranteed another one. And that's what I've been blessed to do is that I've been having those challenges in your life that keep you grounded and keep you focused on that moment and keeping it moving. And then you look back and people say, hey, man, you did this, you did that. And you know it is about being in the moment. So. Like 19 in a row, I was in the moment. And now we're in this moment of time where we have to, you know, do what we have to do to be, you know, show that we deserve to be great human beings under the sun, man. And show the potential that God wants us to be as good human. That, that's great advice. Talking about all these moments that you've had in your, in your path, right? You, you've had a lot, big and small. Was there right. anything, one thing that kind of sticks out? It could be a person or a moment that helped you be who you are today. When I walked in the house and my mom and granny were crying when Dr. King was murdered, that is probably the most inspiring anything, you know, and as far as, you know, you have a picture in your mind of certain things, and the picture in my mind at that point was, who is this man? I got to find out who he is and find out everything about him because I had never seen my mom and granny cry like that. And the other part of it was in growing, when I got a chance to go to Long Beach State and study Dr. King, it came back, it brought me back to a circle to when I was a child and why my mom and were crying. And, you know, Dr. King taught us that, it, you know, if a man hasn't found something to die for, he isn't fit to live. And that whole, that whole question is one that inspired me to do what I could on the basketball level to be able to promote the cause of freedom and justice, man. And, you know, that, that one moment in time, man, has really formulated who I attempt to become as a, as a human being, as a man, you never know until you die. But those are, that moment is the one that put me on the path to, and it ain't about money, man. It's about people. And the more people that you can help during this journey along that we call life or whatever, man, and reach out, give out, because it's always better to give than receive, as my granny taught me. So give it out, man. No, thank you for that. That was beautiful. And I think that that's great advice. And I hope, you know, I'm going to learn from this and, and definitely, hopefully our listeners do as well. So before we wrap up, I always like to do a fun little rapid fire Q&A, you know, three, four questions. First okay. thing, favorite book of all time. Okay. I'm going to go with uh, 
black man of the Nile Valley by Dr. Yosef Binyakana. Okay. Greatest NBA player of all time. Bill Russell. Craziest thing that ever happened to you guys during the Bulls championship years? What, <laughs> the craziest thing for me, we're playing Cleveland. I'm the first one out of the out of the locker room after the game, and I'm walking. I go to the bus, and it's freezing outside. This is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life in any time, and I've been in sports for a minute. So anyway, I come out to get on the bus, and I'm talking about it's 10 below zero or whatever. And the bus driver's looking under the bus, and I'm getting ready to get on the bus, and I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, it's a lady laying under the bus with her baby, and she won't get from under the bus until she meets Michael. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I get down, and I look under the bus, and it's a lady clutching her infant child to her chest. And I go ballistic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I went ballistic on the man. I said, if you don't get your ass from under that bus with that baby, we going to have a problem. You ain't, it ain't going to be a big man. So she gets from under the bus. And now everybody is like, at that point, the players, is, everybody start coming out. And I'm telling them what's going down. <laughs> it was that type of stuff, man. And that was the whole, you know, that was the whole thing around MJ that was, Electrifying man, where as players, it was he never had to worry about getting up for a game because we were going, we were, it was the Beatles, man, and, and hoops. So you were going to have a crowd everywhere you went. <laughs> I love it. That that's probably the the craziest answer that I've gotten so far from doing this for a long time. So thanks <laughs> no for sharing. No problem, man. Once again, man, I appreciate y'all support. Love y'all, and, and stay safe during this time, man. And love one another and study hard. Huge thanks again to Craig Hodges for joining me. Please be sure to check out his book, Long Shot, if you guys get a chance. If you enjoyed today's episode, definitely be sure to give us a like or a follow, or please share the word with your friends. And last but not least, you can follow my work at DocSquad33 on Twitter or VicChoxy33 on Instagram. Thanks again for listening. This is your host, Vic Choxy, signing off. I'll see you next time on Victory Lab. <laughs>